the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is recounting to the nation of Israel how God had been merciful and faithful all these years. God had provided for them even when they complained. God had given them victories over their enemies, even though they had sinned against Him. God was moving them closer to taking the promised land for themselves. But they were to love God with their whole being in order to be successful. Now, God will issue out a blessing and a curse for whether they obey or not. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. In the last two chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses reminded Israel of their not-so-pretty past. He reminded them that they aren't good enough to do this on their own. They need the Lord's help, and without his help, they're not going to be able to accomplish anything. And so they needed to stay humble by, number one, remembering their tendency to sin, and number two, by loving God supremely so that they can stay close to his heart. Well, in chapter 11 now, Moses is going to set before them two options. You can love God, you can do those things, stay humble, love God, and experience his blessings, or you can love yourselves and experience a curse. While we have a better relationship because of the cross, we don't live under the blessing or curse thing here in regards to our obedience. While we have a better relationship under the new covenant, God's desire to bless us and his hatred for sin hasn't changed. And so as Moses shares with Israel, you know, let's purpose to be those who do things that please him, that we would love what he loves and hate what he hates and to love him supremely. So chapter 11, we begin in verse 1. Moses says, therefore, and that's in light of particularly the end of chapter 10, where verse 17, he said, for the Lord your God is a God of gods, a Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and an awesome. He is your praise, verse 21. He is your God that has done these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. In light of who God is and what he's done, he says, therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge. In other words, to observe and obey with great great care, the responsibility that he's given to you, the duty he's put in front of you, that you might keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. Now, what had God asked of them? Well, it goes back to chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God Again, remember, require was a bit too strong of a word. It just means to ask of you. What's God asking of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. To love him supremely. That's what God had asked of them. To follow his heart, his standards, and his will. And that's the same thing God wants for us today. That hasn't changed. God wants us to love him supremely. Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment, what did he say? He quoted a different verse, but it's in Deuteronomy. And it's that same concept that we would love God with everything that's in us. Now, again, you might be thinking, man, Moses just keeps hammering this point, but we keep hearing it over and over and we'll continue to hear it over and over because it's the most important thing to love God with all that's in us. He says, and therefore, in light of who God is and what he's done, because he's so awesome and he's been so good to you, in light of that, love him with everything in you. But also he says, you need to know something today. You need to understand 
two important things, Israel. He says, and these aren't new concepts. He says, for I speak not with your children, which have not known. I'm not talking to your little ones, which they didn't see these things that he's going to mention. These aren't new concepts, but Moses is reminding Israel because they'll only benefit if they learn from their past. That's a great question for us. Do we learn from our past or other people's past failures and successes? I grew up in a small church. Let me rephrase that. I got saved when I was 12. I didn't grow up, but my early Christian experience was in a very small church. Everybody knew everybody. And my pastor personally discipled me. It was just a great experience. I had a good relationship with him. He poured into me a lot. But through that whole experience, I would observe. There were things that you would see. You'd go, okay, don't do that, you know, because you would see what would happen. Do that. See, look at how that worked out. Yeah, I learned those lessons at a very young age, and it kept me out of a lot of trouble. Do we learn from our own failures and successes and the failures and successes of others? Do we learn from the failures and successes of those in the Scripture? Because while our culture might change a little bit, our technology might be different, our locale might be different, people are still people, and life is still life. Do we learn from the lessons in there? That's what a a wise person does, the Bible says. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, it's the most disgusting verse of the Old Testament. Now everyone's curious, right? Like, what is that? You have the Popeye verse from Exodus, I am that I am. Now this is the most disgusting verse. Verse 11, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. (laughs) That's the lesson. I already knew this, but someone mentioned today that, you know, flies, every time they land somewhere, they throw up and they eat it again. But a dog is kind of that way. We had dogs all growing up and they would get sick and then they'd start munching, you know, and you're just like, what are you doing, man? That's disgusting. And he's just Clapping it up. He's good. Like, that's not good. We know that. We should know better. In the same way, a fool returns to his folly like a dog does to his vomit. He just doesn't know better. And, and I don't want to be a foolish person. I think that's probably something I pray every single day. God, I don't want to be a fool. You know, I don't want to be a fool. Please protect me from being a fool. It's important that we learn from others, both successes and failures. Learn from our own. What are these two important things that Israel knows but needs to understand, needs to get ingrained in their heart? Well, he says, For I speak not with your children which have not known and which have not seen, and then he lists the first thing, is that God disciplines sin. He says, Which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God. The first thing that they need to understand is that God disciplines sin. That's what the word chastisement means. It means discipline, correction. This generation that's going into the land, remember what did God do with their their parents? They died in the wilderness because of their sin, right? He disciplined them. Now, God didn't discipline their parents in the wilderness when they sinned because he just got grumpy with them. You know, he just had it. God disciplines his kids because he always hates sin, always. And so this generation needs to understand that they shouldn't think that God would ignore their sin or let them get away with it. Because God didn't let their forefathers get away from it. God didn't let Egypt get away from it. He mentions here. You've seen, you've known, unlike your kids who weren't alive then, you've seen and you've known his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, and his miracles, and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt, unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and unto all his land. And what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses and their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them unto this day. God didn't let Egypt get away with their defiance and their rebellion against him. Moses' audience right now, the ones taking the land, they may have been children when all that happened, but they saw the plagues. They saw how their land of Goshen was miraculously spared while the rest of Egypt was ruined. They saw all that. They saw the army as they were chasing them into the Red Sea that God drowned that army. And they saw how 
Egypt still hadn't recovered from defying the Lord, that God had destroyed them unto this day. They were still set back because of how God dealt with them. They had seen all those things. So if God disciplined Egypt for their sin, why would they think they would get a get-out-of-jail-free card? Not only that, but God disciplined their forefathers, as we mentioned earlier, verse 5. And, know this, what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came unto this place. This generation was old enough to remember all the things that happened to their forefathers when they defied the Lord. How God sent poisonous snakes, how God caused fire from heaven. I mean, God did all sorts of things in judging them, but Moses decides to remind them of a particularly harrowing judgment from God in verse 6. He says, and what he, God, did unto Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben. What was it? Well, this is from number 16 during Korah's rebellion. Remember when they came to Moses and said, you know, Moses, you and Aaron, you guys take too much upon yourselves. I mean, we're all the children of God. We all hear from God. We can all prophesy. Why have you taken this leadership role amongst us? You've taken too much upon yourself. You guys got big heads. And Moses fell down before the Lord. He's like, what do I do, Lord? I didn't pick myself for this job. You picked me. And so the Lord said, you tell them to come out in front of their tents so I'll deal with them. Korah didn't come out from his tent. He didn't respond at all, but these two did. So we see here, this is from number 16, that what happened? Moses said to me, said, listen, you guys have accused me of taking on too much, but all I've done is what the Lord told me to do. So if I'm really from the Lord, let the earth open up and swallow you guys up right now. And there they stood in front of their tents and (laughs) Middle East dinner. They saw that. You know how the earth swallowed them up and their households and their tents and all their substance that was in their possession in the midst of Israel. This is called part of God's great act as mighty works. We usually only think of God's great acts, the good miracles, you know, when Jesus raised somebody from the dead, you know, when he saved them from the Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea. But God's judgments, they show his awesome power too. And since this generation had seen that, they'd lived through that, they should never deceive themselves into thinking that sin isn't a big deal or that God won't deal with them if they disobey. But sometimes we make the mistake of doing that ourselves. We think, well, I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. I'm forgiven. So, I mean, you know, God, you know, he's not going to discipline me or, you know, he's not going to deal with me. And we must never forget that the Lord always hates sin. So he always disciplines us. Now, obviously, he doesn't discipline us all right on the spot. If you have kids, you don't always probably discipline them right on the spot. You give them an opportunity to fix it on their own first, right? Now, there are times if it's so egregious, I have to deal with it. But a lot of times, I'll be like, okay, let's see how they deal with this. Let's see how they respond. And so the Lord does that with us too. He gives us space to repent. But he doesn't ignore it. He's not just saying, oh, that's my kids. You know how my kids are sometimes. And the Lord's like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna deal with this if you don't. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says, my little children, these things we write unto you that you sin not. The goal hasn't changed. These things we write unto you so you don't sin. You know, when we read the scriptures, the whole idea is we're to be getting closer to the Lord, walking more in obedience to him, and our lives walking in sin less. And if you're not shooting for that goal, then you've missed something, something very important. If we love God, we do what he says, right? That's what the Bible says. So the new covenant didn't remove that truth. When we talk about being justified by faith alone, it doesn't mean that it's a faith that doesn't produce anything. That's why James said what he said. You want to talk about your faith? He goes, I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you that I trust God by the way I live, by the way I act, by how I do life. And so it's important because, you know, there's a lot of people, sadly today, who talk about their faith a lot, but sometimes even just the way they talk about their faith shows that they're They're not walking in obedience to God because they're rude and they're unkind. 
When we look at this idea that God disciplines sin, that obedience is the goal, that sin is never okay, the new covenant, that's not something that changed that. It didn't remove that truth. But the new covenant also didn't introduce this idea that God wants to bless us. God's always been that way. And that's the second important thing Israel needs to understand. They need to understand that God hates sin and he disciplines it. But number two, God wants to bless us. Look at verse eight. He says, but your eyes, or verse seven, but your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord, which he did. Therefore, shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whither you go to possess it. Why does God want them to be obedient? Well, obviously because it's the right thing and because that's evidence of our love for him. But at the same time, it's because he wants to bless them. He says that you may be strong and that you might go in and possess the land where you're going to possess it. The word there, strong, means to have the ability to accomplish what you intend to do. There are things that I set out to do. For example, fixing the lawnmower. Strong would not be the word used to describe that endeavor. I am setting out to do it, but it is very unlikely I will succeed. <laughs> All right? On the other hand, there are other tasks that I can put in front of me, and I probably will have the ability to accomplish what I intend to do. Here, the idea is you intend to go in and take this land. I want to bless you with the strength necessary to do that, the ability to do that. So will you please, he says, keep all the commandments which I command you this day so that you will be strong to go in and possess the land that you plan to take. God wanted to bless Israel by empowering them to do what they'd set out to do. Doesn't that sound like a better way to do life than fighting God every step of the way? I mean, I've done that too, you know, where you fight God every step of the way. It's miserable. The Lord, he is, he's the hound of heaven, you know, is what someone's called him once. And he's always on my trail. I'll say, Lord, I just need a few days. And the Lord will be like, nope. And he's just right there. I love you, Will. I'm not going to give you a few days because those few days will be bad for you. And you'll regret it afterwards. So I want to talk to you about this. No, Lord, can we talk about these other things? No, I want to talk to you about this. This is the important thing right now because it's the thing you haven't yielded to me yet. It's much easier to just yield to the Lord and experience his blessings than to fight him every step of the way. Now, not only did God want to bless Israel by empowering them to do what they were setting out to do, but he wanted to bless Israel by giving them a fulfilling life. Look at verse 9. And, this is also why they need to keep his commandments, and that you may prolong your days in the land, which the Lord your God swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey the Lord says here that he wants to give them a long, fulfilling life in the land. The word there, prolong, it means to lengthen. God had every intention of keeping Israel in the land forever. Just as God has every intention that you and I experience all the life he has for us. Now, sadly, some of us don't experience that. Like King Josiah, we, our lives get cut short because we become proud and we do things our own way. But if we trust in the Lord with all our heart, we don't lean on our own understanding. You know, he'll direct our paths and we will experience that full life that God has for us. And do you realize that God has that for you? See, the reason so many times we come up short on what God wants us to experience is because we think he's against us. He says, hey, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Yeah, but God, he died. You know, that means I have to die and I don't want to die. And the Lord's like, yeah, but dying, it's going to be great. Trust me. It is. My blessings will rest upon you. My presence will be with you. I'll fill you with my spirit. You'll experience a joy in knowing that I'm pleased with you in that and a strength that will help you endure. It'll be great. And we, we're like, you know what, Lord? I don't think so. In fact, I think this whole thing is rigged against me. And we begin to think that God is not for us, that God is actually keeping us from something good. Romans 8, what does it say? If God be for us, who can be against us, right? It actually says a few things before that. 
Romans 8, 31. It says, what shall we then say to these things? All this stuff that God offers to us, all the good things he has for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? But then it says this. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, since he did that, how shall he not with him, now that we're in him and he's given us Jesus, how shall he not with giving us Jesus also freely give us all things. That's a pretty awesome promise, isn't that? Like, he's already given us his own son. If, if he didn't hold back his son, which is precious and dear to him, why would he hold back anything else that's good for us? He says he will with the Lord, with Jesus. He's already given that to us. If that's all he gave us, it'd be way better than we deserved. But with that, he says, shall I not give us richly all these other things? That sounds like a cool promise, right? So why do we sin then? Because we don't believe it. At some point, we see that promise, or we don't understand it sometimes. I know a large part of my Christian life, I just didn't think God actually wanted that for me. But we don't believe it. We either don't know it or we don't believe it. We believe God is withholding something good from us, something we absolutely must have to be happy. So we cross his boundaries to lay hold of it. This is why obedience and faith are, are really the same thing. Because it comes down to whether we trust that God is good and what he says is true. So if I believe that, I'll obey. If I don't believe that, I disobey. Now, Israel was no different. The temptation would be to, to take the land for granted and then to explore beyond God's boundaries to find happiness, to look around them and go, well, this is nice, but I mean, I think there's actually better out there for me. And then when the Lord says, well, no, there's not. Within these boundaries, it's awesome. And we kind of look at it and we go, Israel would look at it and go, I don't think so, Lord. I'm gonna try this Molech worship or Ashtoreth worship out. I think that's where it's at. And they would cross those lines and then God would have to deal with them. But God didn't want to. He wanted to bless them. So he wanted to bless them by giving them the strength to do what they set out to do, by giving them a fulfilling life, and by giving Israel a good land. See, Moses reminds him that the land God is giving to them is worth trusting God. It's worth obeying God for. Look at verse 10. For the land which you go in to possess it, it's not like the land of Egypt from whence you came out of, where you sow your seed and water it by foot as the garden of herbs. But the land where you go to possess it, it's a land of hills and valleys, and it drinks water from the rain of heaven. Did you know that Egypt gets less than one inch of rainfall per year? I mean, it's incredibly arid. It almost never rains there. To this day, the majority of their crops are planted close to the Nile River so that water doesn't have to be transported very far for irrigation. In Moses' day, the water would have to be carried by foot. That's why it mentions here, watered by foot. They'd have to be carried by foot from the Nile to the planted crops. But the land of Israel, while it's an arid region still, it has two rainy seasons. And when that rain comes steadily like it's supposed to, it makes the land one of the more fertile areas in that region of the world. You know, he's telling me, he's saying, guys, you know, God wants to not just give you things, but he wants to give you good things. This land he's offering you, it's worth trusting him for. It's worth obeying him for. Why is this land so good compared to other places? Well, it's because it's a land God deeply cares for. Look at verse 12. A land which the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. The word there to care for, it means to take actions which nourish something or keep it safe. There are so many reasons that it's so special to God. I could take the entire time tonight listing all those reasons, but most importantly, it's where his son would die. It's where his son would make reconciliation with him possible for all mankind. That's the main reason it's special to him. The fact that God says his eyes are always upon this land from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year is one of the reasons we can never spiritualize the promised land. We can never spiritualize the nation of Israel by saying, oh, the church is Israel or the church's influence in the world is the promised land now. We can't do that. That land, his eyes are on that land. It's a physical place that his eyes are 
on. He cares for it, and he takes actions which nourish and keep it safe from the beginning of the year even unto the end of year for as long as this earth exists. The promised land is a plot of ground that is special to God every day of every year for as long as this world exists. And that means Israel's place in the land matters to God too which means it should matter to us. When you and I ignore that, when we begin to say, oh, I don't know about this whole Israel being a nation thing. I mean, like it's very unpopular today to talk about Israel being fulfilled prophecy, you know, them being a nation again, or to, to speak of how this is a good thing. It's very unpopular in the church today, particularly amongst a younger generation who did not live during the times to see the miraculous happen, a nation that didn't exist all of a sudden exists again. And to see that miracle, now it's because it's not politically correct. Well, when we ignore the fact that that is a land God loves, a land that he gave to that people, and he's put them there, it's like telling God, I know this is important to you, but it's just not to me. And I don't want to be guilty of that about anything. If Israel will love God supremely, he says he'll make sure that that land stays fertile. Verse 13, and it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently. And that's that phrase, hearken diligently. It's just the same word twice. It means to listen and it's doubled for emphasis. If you guys will really listen, really listen, he says unto my commandments, which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Well, then I will give you the rain of your land in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain. That's those two seasons. You may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. What I love here is that he doesn't just say that loving God is just doing what he says, but he talks about it over and over again. Exercise great care. Be diligent. And here he says, really listen. Really take it to heart. See, loving God supremely is, means that we go further than just a list of do's and don'ts. Well, I love God because, you know, I, I don't do this and I don't do that and I do do this and I do this. I mean, that there's some truth to that, but that's not really what God's after here. We go further than just a list of do's and don'ts. It's recognizing how important God's ways are to him and then making it important to me. You can pray for us, me and Bev. I say us, me and Bev and our kids. We made a decision recently to adopt two children. It'll be four years next week that we've been here. And four years ago, I introduced myself and said, these are my four children. And we have one on the way. And you know, someone went, woohoo! And I had to explain, not a physical one coming through normal birth means, but we've been trying to adopt for quite some time. And we made a decision you know, a few weeks ago to adopt two children, a boy and a girl. And uh, we're really excited about that. But I can honestly tell you that was, that was a difficult decision for me. Not because I didn't know it was what the Lord wanted me to do, but because I had to get over some of my issues. This is the idea of what he's trying to convey here. You know, he's like, I'm going to do all this for you. I knew what, I, what God wanted me to do, but it wasn't just about making the phone call or typing the email and saying yes. I needed to get my heart in a place where, where I could say, Lord, I want your heart for this. I want your mindset for this. And that's what the Lord is after, that we make what's important to him important to us. And the Lord, over and over again, I would be reading in my devotions, whatever, and he talked to me how important it was to you know, minister to the fatherless and the widow and, and, and to, to minister to those who are in need, to serve those who are the least of these. I mean, all the various things that you're going through and you're looking going, this is a no-brainer. And why is my heart not where it's supposed to be? And then you bring it to the Lord and let him mold and shape your heart into what he wants it to be. That's what he's after about loving God supremely. Not just a list of do's and don'ts. Not only would he give them the rain and, and all this stuff and supply their every need, but he says, I will send grass in your fields for your cattle that you may eat and be full. The word there, grass, it just means green plants. So this would be food both for animals, the grass that they would eat, the pasture land, but then it's also crops. He says, I'll give you both that you may eat and be satisfied to have everything you need. 
Doesn't that sound like the way to go if you're Israel? Like, what should we do? What should we do here? Like, it should be a no-brainer, right? <laughs> hey, let's love God supremely. Let's do what he says, because this sounds like the best option here. So why do we often think that we can do better? God has not given us these promises. These are promises made to Israel. Like God doesn't promise that I'm going to have grass and plenty of food for my pasture animals. But God has given us precious promises that are equally good. So why do we think we can do better? See, and that's what it comes down to, trusting God or trusting ourselves. The problem with trusting myself is that I'm very good at deceiving myself. Have you ever noticed that? We're very good at deceiving ourselves. I remember the chapter in Jeremiah, I think it's 19, but that might not be right, where it talks about how the heart is desperately wicked above all things. That's not hyperbole. That's a statement. My heart is desperately wicked. It is wicked to the nth degree, and it is more deceptive than anything else out there. The thing that gets me most in trouble is me. It's not my spouse. It's not my kids. It's not my job. It's not my community. It's not my government. It's not anything else. It's not the culture. It's me, my own heart. God desires to bless all men. In the creation account back in Genesis chapter 1, one of the very first things God did was bless them. This is his heart towards us, but he will not let us be cavalier with sin. Sin was serious enough that God came down, took on flesh and blood, and then suffered and died just to pay for our sin. Why not come to him, leave sin behind, and see what amazing blessings God will give in return for our obedience? If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.